Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to this uh, afternoon here in the UK's uh, uh, webinar, The Future of the Non-Maghrib, the Least Integrated Region on the Planet. The event is organized between the LSE Middle East Center and the Society for Algerian Studies. My name is Ad Hamezi, and I'll be your moderator for this afternoon, uh, representing the Society for Algerian Studies. The Society for Algerian Studies is always indebted and grateful to, to, the, to the kind hospitality that the LSE uh, and Middle East Center always affords us both virtually uh, and in person. Um, just to sort of say a little bit about the, the, the sort of format for, for, today's, um, uh, for today's event, uh, the idea is that we're going to have a slightly different um, uh, uh, format rather than a, a pure scholarly uh, discussion with one individual, which is something that we've done in the past. Uh, we have four excellent speakers who also have who ha also happen to have connections to the region uh, and boast scholarly and, and practitioner and private sector prowess so we're delighted to have this sort of multi-perspective uh, multi uh, multi stakeholder event um, the idea is that we're going to have a six to eight minutes intervention from each of our four speakers uh, history politics economics people to people uh, and then we will uh, move on to a sort of round two uh, moving on from the diagnosis and the lay of the land to a round two mini discussion with myself, Moa, the moderator, uh, and then we will open up for, for Q&A. Uh, and what I ask is that in both the Zoom, uh, in the Zoom uh, chat or Q&A, you can ask your questions there throughout the event, so you don't have to wait until the end per se, uh, and you can do the same for, for Facebook. Um, you can tweet uh, the event at LSC Maghreb, and, the, and please note that the event will be recorded and live streamed on, on Facebook. So just a very brief uh, intros, rather than um, introing our, uh, our speakers as we, as, we, uh, um, as we go. So we have Dr. Idris Jabari, who is a Maktoum professor in Middle East Studies at Trinity College, University of Dublin. His research focuses on North Africa, uh, mostly from a cultural and social perspective and cultural social history. Uh, he received his doctorate from the University of Oxford and has held postdocs at the American University of Beirut uh, and previously taught at Bowdoin College uh, across, the, across the pond in Maine. Uh, Idris and I have had uh, the pleasure of discussing uh, the topic of the Maghreb or non-Maghreb for, for, for many years and uh, looking forward to what he has to say today. Um, we also have Emel Karbul, who is former Minister of Tourism uh, in Tunisia. Uh, she's held leadership positions across the corporate, political, and not-for-profit sectors for, for some uh, 25 years, so since she was about five, uh, and, and also in the fields of tech, AI, and education, uh, and has also worked at the Maghreb Economic Forum and is currently CEO of uh, the Education Outcomes Fund, a billion-dollar fund to support governments around the world uh, with respect to education and, and skills for young people. We also have Azadin Layashi, Professor of Politics at St. John's University in New York City, where he teaches courses in comparative politics and, and IR, uh, and has authored several books which uh, have been a boon for, for Maghreb watchers uh, and, and those that look at politics, political economy, and so on and so forth. Uh, doc, Dr. Layashi was also uh, going to be the editor-in-chief of the Journal of North African Studies from January 2021. And last but not least, and this isn't actually the, the sequence that we've curated for this afternoon, but Amin Bouhassan, who is co-founder of the think tank ISM, Initiatives for the Maghreb Economic Community, and is also the Human Resources Director of Haimi in Casablanca, a major French player in the youth insurance market, and, and does excellent work on the Maghreb. And he hasn't mentioned this in his bio that you may have seen, but uh, has even climbed to the highest peak uh, in Africa. Uh, I remember him telling me this during a discussion in, in Casablanca, I think it was last year, 
um, uh, where he plotted the Maghreb flag. So uh, uh, a dedicated uh, Maghreba uh, and uh, is speaking with us today from, from Casablanca. Uh, with no further ado, I'd like to, to open up. So the idea is that um, Dr. Jabari will open up with a historical context, provide some intellectual scaffolding for us this, this afternoon, uh, and sort of take us from Etoile uh, Africaine, the North African star, uh, through to uh, the 80s, uh, the inception of the regional organization that is UMA. Uh, Idris, could you tell us why the uh, the, the Etoile North Africaine uh, is not shining so bright at the moment? Uh, and, and, and how did we get to, 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 to the current juncture today as least integrated region in the planet, some 3% intra-regional trade compared to the likes of the EU, Mercosur, ASEAN, GCC even, who are in uh, double digits and, and beyond. Idris, six to eight minutes. Thank you very much for this uh, very kind invitation and introduction. Thank you to my co-panelists. And it's a pleasure to return to the LSE where I uh, actually wrote my MA thesis on the regional reconciliation between Morocco and Algeria in the 80s that led to UMA. So this is a wonderful uh, circle coming around. So I'll start maybe with the final, the hook that uh, uh, Adel gave me, which is to say that in the history of the Maghreb, we should say, in fact, that the Maghreb does exist as a region, as a community, as a set of shared cultural norms, and even as a historical experience. Instead, this non-Maghreb, the expression coming from uh, Professor Abdel Jalil Tamimi in Tunisia, uh, refers to a political idea, a search for an integrated region of nation states that would in, uh, enjoy a range of economic, legal, institutional, and other ties, and see themselves as part of a common destiny. In fact, over the years of the generation, this idea of the Maghreb has never quite disappeared. It's proved very resilient despite its lack of realization. It's uh, often been the case or cited that the lack of realization owes to the competition between two of its bigger countries vying for supremacy. However, it is also common to hear that the United Region represents the popular will. What the people want and its lack of realization owes to, it's a symptom of the leaders who refuse to hear their people. Nowadays, just as in the past, the Maghreb is evoked fondly as a hope, a lament precisely because it reminds everyone in the region that those at the top or the everyday folk keep dreaming of a way to overcome the status quo. Now, as a historian, I consider the various attempts and stages to build this Maghreb as a collective political project. It's a story of disappointment, disillusionment, and near misses. And we may point to the establishment in 1989 of Ittihad al-Maghrib as the closest realization we've had, but also as a story of uh, underwhelming achievements. Today, I want to give you a very brief overview of the road to this non-Maghrib that I identify as a series of missed rendezvous in four stages, considered under the framework of multilateralism rather than international relations and realpolitik. And the story starts with the interwar years as the nationalist elites and the workers met in France and began to format this idea of the United Maghreb as a resistance strategy against French colonialism. At the level of the elites, North African students in Paris met at the offices of the Association des étudiants du monde d'Afrique du Nord, began to coordinate their struggle and share ideas about what future governance could look like. 
Meanwhile, at the level of workers, the French Communist Party established in 1926, this party that Adel mentioned, Etoile Nord-Africaine, a party with a very strong membership of immigrant workers in France around the idea of a common struggle. And then in our focused, focused more its struggle on the Algerian fight under Masali Hajj. But this important moment planted the first seed of this united Maghreb. Fast forward uh, a couple of decades in April 1958 in Tangiers. As the nationalist struggle escalates in the mid-1950s, the three nationalist movements start to coordinate seriously how to carry out and achieve this independent struggle from France under a common united framework. And so they meet and they build their uh, struggle in Cairo around the Maghreb office, where famous nationalists such as Abdel Karim, Bourguiba, and others echoed the solidarity we heard in the streets of the Maghreb itself against French colonialism. Morocco and Tunisia become independent in October and in 1956. And shortly after, in October, a Moroccan plane carrying five FLN leaders towards Tunis is hijacked by a French jet. And those leaders were arrested. This was in the context two years into the Algerian, the bloody war of independence. And this plane, in fact, was en route to Tunis in order to put the first step towards the establishment of a united uh, political project. Two years later, they did the three countries, the three nationalist parties meet in Tangiers. They held working sessions, and even the King Mohammed al-Khamis gave a famous speech at the time. And while the feeling of solidarity was still strong, the political opportunity had possibly passed at that point in time. And the logic, the imperatives of modern statehood took over these regional aspirations. And in fact, in 1962, very shortly after Algeria's independence, the three countries clashed over border territorial issues that will characterize the relationship in the region up to this day and in other conflicts. Then we turn to March 1970 at the meeting of several ministers and co technical cooperation. And this episode represents the ignored moment of this history of the Maghreb and an attempt to establish its solid basis. And from 1964, the North African ministers of economy start meeting at a regular pace under the framework of the permanent consultative committee of the Maghreb, inspired by the EEC's experience itself, in order to study what complementarity would look like. It was a technical exercise and an attempt to harmonize their economies, set up common industrial standards, legisl legislative frameworks. Unfortunately, in March 1970, Libya withdraws from the process, which opens the door for these countries in the region to establish bilateral association agreements with the EU from the mid-1970s. So how do we explain this failure, perhaps, well, unity projects were structurally ill-equipped, whereas unity was disincentivized in comparison to uh, immediate agreements. And finally, in 1988, the famous moment, 1988-99, from Ziralda to Marrakesh. The progressive reconciliation between Algerian president Benjdid and the Moroccan king Hassan II at Zoujbrel, at the border, on the Saudi mediation, paved the way for the countries of the central Maghreb, plus Mauritania and Libya, to come together and negotiate the agreement that would establish this organization at Tehad al-Maghribi, or UMA, one year later in Marrakesh. This was a landmark moment. It was presented on the heading, under the heading of enlightened political will, as the five heads of state held their hands up high together, having overcome regional enmity. 
What is often neglected is the context that incentivized this uh, rapprochement, a decade of structural adjustments, economic downturns, and bread riots forming a common riot that would be seen as a way to kickstart their economies. Unfortunately, this young organization did not survive its first political crisis in 1994, a terrorist attack in Marrakesh in the context of the Algerian civil war, froze the organization and led to the closing of the border between the two countries. And so I conclude now by talking very briefly about the next 15 years under le new leadership in both countries. Idris, Idris, can you do 15 minutes in 60 seconds? Yes, no, 15 no, years, I, 15 I, years in 60 seconds, rather. I have three lines here. Mohammed Sedis and Abdelaziz Bouteflika, and we saw hopes of this potential thaw dashed by, excuse me, dashed by resistance from the two regimes, mutual accusations and drug smuggling, and inelegant conducts along the way, with a new factor that changed the rules of the game, that stereotypes from the population about the, other pop about the other group are now seen as an additional layer of obstacles for this regional proximity. I'm happy to explore more, but I'll stop here to give the opportunity to my colleagues to explain the present and how we can address it going forward. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Idris. Uh, chapeau to you. You took us through almost a century and eight minutes, so uh, well done. Um, you, you, you sort of alluded to the 1994 moment, you know, unfortunately, we went from a, a, a situation in 1990, uh, Dr. Azadin, as, as, as I come over to you, where we had uh, uh, the, the late King Hassan Athani describing um, objectives of one identity, one passport, one currency. And uh, five years later, we ended up with a closed border and uh, 25, 26 years of, of, of otherization. And of course, um, this panel has become even more topical, uh, elephant in the room or camel, um, uh, as we've, have of course, seen some of the challenges and, and, and tensions flaring up in, in the Sahara al-Gharbiya, the Western Sahara. Uh, and while we don't want this to be a discussion about Algeria and Morocco solely, they are the Maghreb heavyweights, they are the two big populations. Dr. Azadin, could you tell us a little bit about the geo bracket, geopolitical dynamics perspectives, the role of uh, the regional players and personalities, but also the role of external actors, if there are any, when it comes to Maghreb integration. Uh, Dr. Azadin, please. And, and sorry, I must, I must thank Dr. Azadin with an extra thanks. And I, I said it before and I'll say it uh, between friends, participants, audience, uh, speaking with us from New York on a holiday. So thank you, Azadin. <laughs> it is a pleasure. I could not miss this opportunity. Uh, and, uh, th there is a lot to be said in trying to answer your question, which is very good. Uh, I'm going to try to uh, uh, point to a few things uh, here and there, and probably the discussion will bring uh, on more points later on. Uh, now, we all know that there was a, you know, some enthusiasm for uh, Arab unity and Maghreb unity after the, uh, the end of colonialism, but things uh, did not go as wished, as uh, was just said when colonialism ended. And uh, in spite of common challenges that the countries in the Maghreb faced, such as underdevelopment and its, usually, uh, its usual corollaries, external imperatives of, neo -economic, uh, uh, of neoliberal economic reforms, as we have seen, uh, the Algerians went through tough times, uh, uh, the Moroccans as well in the 80s and the 90s, and also the Tunisians. And there were societal challenges to governance, also experienced uh, across the board, plus environmental problems such as drought and desertification, 
and then regional security concerns associated with domestic instability and also in neighboring states, including internal challenges from radical Islamist groups and threats from uh, more much later roaming armed groups such as Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, and, uh, and more recently, of course, uh, the ISIS uh, long connection. So the common challenges are, uh, should have uh, inspired the Maghrebi leaders to seek regional cooperation in an effort to combine political and economic resources and coordinate policies and actions for the sake of their citizens' well-being and their country's development in an increasingly difficult international environment. However, as we know, uh, the uneasy relationship between all five countries uh, in the last 60 years contributed substantially to inhibiting most efforts towards regional cooperation uh, <clears throat> and integration. Uh, and the uh, negative, sorry about that. I have to disconnect the, the phone. Uh, the negative relationship uh, between uh, Algeria and Morocco contributed tremendously to that. So some of the intra and interstate conflicts and brewing tensions uh, in the region. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, things were a lot worse, of course, in the late 70s and even the early 1980s. But the situation has changed internally and externally for all states by the end of the 1980s. Morocco had, by that time, subdued the nationalist movement in Western Sahara and annexed most of the, ter it's, uh, the territory. And Libya uh, fell under international sanctions based on the accusation of its involvement in international terrorism, as we know. <clears throat> and uh, the uh, uh, Gaddafi's resentment against the Arab states uh, at that time was not very helpful, especially because he's, he, he saw the Arab states uh, uh, acquiescence with the uh, sanctions, uh, sanctioned regimes as being uh, treacherous and so on. And he was fearing an encirclement by hostile forces, especially Europeans and the, uh, and the United States. And also at the same time, the Europe and the United States were uh, uh, engaging in talks and agreements with the Maghreb countries on economic and security issues, uh, including of course the free trade agreements and, and other uh, arrangements. There were even joint military exercises between the United States, uh, Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, and Algeria, which made him nervous. The invasion of Iraq in 2003 by the United States also made him even more nervous. And the increased US presence, uh, military presence in the Sahel was also a factor. So all this, of course, led Libya to uh, finally do whatever was being asked in order to lift the sanctions and try to regain some credibility, at least in the Mediterranean basin, but it was well too late uh, for that. The uh, other development, the regional tensions continued in many forms, distracting all from the Union project. The Moroccan-Algerian border, as was just mentioned, closed in 1994, and Tunisia had turned into, at the time uh, in, in the early 1990s, uh, uh, into a police state and kept a low profile out of concern for the violent Islamic, uh, for the, uh, out of concern for the violent Islamist rebellion that was going on in Algeria in the 1990s. And uh, <clears throat> Algeria was of course traumatized by the bloody internal war of the 90s, which kept it isolated from the outside world and 
was, you know, very much uh, 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 for keeping a tight control over its borders. Uh, it was suspecting that uh, weapons to the to the Islamists were coming through the borders, especially the Moroccan border. And uh, <clears throat> there was a suspicion also that Libya was giving direct assistance to Islamist rebels through Tunisia. So Algeria had to uh, control its border and close it with Tunisia from 1994-1995. And Mauritania, on the other hand, which we tend to forget to mention, was isolated uh, even more from its uh, neighbors uh, to the north due to the pool of economic despair and political instability, as well as tensions with its neighbor to the south, Senegal, which almost led to a war. And uh, <clears throat> the Arab Spring uh, brought about important changes in the dynamics uh, in the region. Uh, dynamics between Libya and Tunisia, for example, were affected. After both uh, countries ousted their leaders, Tunisia supported the changes taking place in Libya, but soon became very concerned about the chaotic and violent situation in its neighbors. It was concerned about possible infiltration of armed militants, uh, which could threaten the changes, the positive changes made since 2001. And Algeria and Morocco, of course, feared the effect of what happened in these two countries uh, and in Egypt. As a result, they both tightened their borders while trying to preempt potential popular upheaval among their respective populations. And so hopes for opening to the neighbors receded even further. And this is where we are today. The national interest of the Maghreb states uh, dictated uh, for many years a search for global rather than regional uh, economic opportunities and partners. And so the choices were between uh, uh, national interest over regional interest. Uh, and of course, regional, the national interest led them to uh, search for global integration uh, over regional integration. And due to internal conflicts across uh, and cross-border tensions and divergent interests, the Maghrebi states embarked, therefore, on uh, separate paths to strengthen their own economies, to build ties with the major powers and players in the international arena. Uh, One minute, Dr. Azadin. <laughs> okay. Uh, I want, I'm going to go over the next 15 years in one minute. Just kidding. Uh, let me just go to the conclusion and then uh, I hopefully will be able to uh, put in more later on. So therefore, I was just saying that every, each country had developed individual commercial links with the, with the Arab world, Africa, uh, Western Europe, the US, Russia, and China, but not with its immediate neighbors. As we know, trade between the Maghreb states is probably below 5%. Uh, and uh, this is despite the fact that the region uh, had all the resources to really succeed as a, a single economic unit. The uh, usual approach to regional integration does not always take into account the political dimension of regional integration and this uh, therefore not helpful and we need to take that into account. This, in, this, in the context of the post-Arab upheaval uh, of 2011, Rulers have become very sensitive to the mood, of course, of the streets and would in short term do whatever it takes to keep the peace at home. And this means keeping the status quo, and this is where we are now, and, to re and also refusing to make hard policy choices that could bring long-term benefits to societies 
and resistance to opening the economic borders to the neighbors. They may also uh, feel more comfortable working with trading frameworks that are beyond the region, such as the EU and bilateral agreements, even if the deals they sign are not necessarily the best ones in their countries. So the leaders of the Maghreb and elsewhere on the African continent cannot be trusted with making the right decisions at the right time, and this is where we are. Too many considerations prevent them from acting on the promises of the Maghrebi integration. For this reason, a non-state-centric approach to regional integration is necessary, uh, but may not be possible, of course. The stakeholders must have a say on what needs to be done, how and at what cost. Also, citizen involvement may force the hand of resistant decision makers who may be too tuned on regional power balance calculations and too busy with personal matters to take the right action and make the right policies for the benefit of our societies. And I will leave it here and I hope that we will have a discussion on exactly what can happen, uh, uh, what might be possible from uh, that perspective. Thank you, Dr. Azadine. I think um, I think it's fair to say, it, before we sort of transition to the economics, it sounds like it, it is the politics uh, stupid. And, yes. <laughs> uh, and, and in November 2020, uh, of course, we've got, you know, it's, it's the 25th anniversary of, of, the, of the Euromed, the Barcelona process. Um, and, and of course, one of the losses that uh, I, I, I suspect I might mention is, is the losses of bargaining power when you're not a, a block per se. So, you know, beyond uh, agglomeration losses and economies of scale. Uh, Emin, in, in, in seven to eight minutes max, could you sort of take us through the, the economic status quo, the costs and consequences of, of being a siloed region, a fragmented region, uh, uh, this, this, this Maghreb al-Arabi or Maghreb al-Kabir, uh, and we'll come back to why the Maghreb al-Arabi is, is an issue as a name in and of its own right. I mean, please. Thank you. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, first of all, we have to know that the countries uh, in the Maghreb uh, are geograph geographically close, but uh, economically, economically diverse. Uh, we know that Algeria depends on hydrocarbon, and uh, Morocco has succeeded in well diversifying its economy, uh, whereas Tunisia is trying uh, to restore macroeconomic stability. So we have three different countries uh, uh, in the same area. This area, we have 100 million of inhabitants, and which is very important is that 80% uh, of this uh, population lives near to the coast. That means that we have an amazing concentration of the population uh, in the same area. And uh, what does it mean? It means that the population is growing by 1.3 million every year, especially in Algeria. So we have a big issue here in the area because we have more and more people living in the Maghreb we, we need to find solution. And the solution is, is here, is in the Maghreb where I live because I'm here in Casablanca. We know that the Maghreb has a, a tremendous uh, agricultural potential. We have, uh, it holds more than 3% of the world's known oil reserves and gas, 50% uh, of the known phosphate reserves. And it's very important, we have a lot of uh, infrastructure such, such as motor resection, railway, new high-speed rail in uh, between Tangiers and Casablanca. We have international airport, everything. So we have something to do with the um, infrastructure. But what 
what is the diagnostic in the intra-regional trade? Uh, how can I say? Um, the intra-regional trade represents less than 5% of the total trade of these countries. Conversely, in Africa, is around 16%. In Latin America, 19%. In Asia, 51%, and so on, until Europe is around 70%. So we have a loss of earnings estimated between three, two and three billion dollars every year per country. And uh, if you are thinking that Maghreb attracts uh, a lot of FDI, that means foreign direct investment, it's false. We have only 0.5% uh, of the Europe FDI. Where conversely, Mexico, Mexican country, attracts 20, 26 billion dollars every year, of which half is coming from US. So you know that the key figures uh, are showing that we are fighting against gravity in this region. Um, the, P, the GDP, sorry, PIB in French, the, the GDP, the, the joint Maghreb GDP will exceed around. $370 billion, which will be comparable to the GDP of South Africa. South Africa is around 58 billion of people, or Israel, less than 9 million of inhabitants. So you know, we have a good challenge, and especially in the COVID-19 context, because the growth is very, uh, is very um, decreasing. The, gro the growth, sorry, is decreasing. The GDP will decrease by 6 to 7%. Uh, in Morocco, according to the IMF, in Tunisia, this year we, uh, the GDP will decrease by 7.2%, and in Algeria it will be around 5.5%. So we have an emergency in this region, and uh, if we add in to these figures that the global FDI drops by uh, around 50% in the world, uh, we we need to find new solution. But before telling what are the solutions, we have to ask ourselves, why did we fail? Uh, I, I, I really appreciate uh, the Idris presentation uh, because uh, he started from Paris to Marrakesh uh, over 50 years. So it was very interesting for me. I think we may have gone too fast without a clear vision. Absolutely. Because I believe we have mixed up uh, an ideological dream we have a strategic plan or pragmatism economic plan. So we need goodwill, political courage, and a leadership to overcome close border, as the professor said, and national selfishness. This is the key, because here in Maghreb, what we have, we know that our economy is made up of 95% by SMEs, small uh, and medium enterprises, businesses. So the private sector, suffers from lack of information and databases. The region don't ha doesn't have a commercial service to facilitate means of payment, to fight solution against non-convertible currencies, because the payment is a really issue also. We need to stop paying in foreign currency. We need to promote the quality of our product. It's very important. In addition to that, there is a lack of mechanism regarding respect of the agreements. I can give you a lot of examples. Just uh, last week, a friend of mine told me that he works on the chemical industry. And he, uh, 
he told me that uh, he cannot import from Algeria the same goods. Um, so he has to import from China, and it will be um, it will be uh, it will be a, a, a great difficulty for him because it would take a long time and is uh, is more is more expensive. And I can uh, give you another example on the soft drink industry because in, in there one, were no in, in one minute. I mean. Okay. Okay. And also, I will have. I will. We need to know that the the five countries in the Maghreb area uh, are membership in several economic communities. So we cannot focus on the Maghreb success if we are um, member of the uh, of another uh, regional uh, community. If we want to uh, um, gain, if we want to have more. A partnership with Europe, for instance, such as Tunisia and Morocco. So we need to know what do we want because uh, here in the region we know that international trade, FDI, and diverse inclusive realistic projects can be can be um, can be uh, can be realized in the in this region. So I will uh, I will end just telling you, but we cannot. Um, we cannot do new things uh, without the involvement of the citizen. That's why uh, I really uh, appreciate this uh, this commentary for the professor. Thank you so much, Emin. I think you 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 gave us a, a great tour d'horizon in, in six to eight minutes, and I think that the composition of the economies is a very important point. You know, trade, non-trade measures, uh, non-tariff measures, as they were, and and so on and so forth. Um, but of course, you know, you know, I think you rightfully point to the, to the role of markets. You know, you're going into a 34 million market FDI or you open those borders. Inshallah, one day Libya is back with us and you're talking about 100 million, like you said. And who knows, maybe Egypt to join us. Um, we now transition to, 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 to sort of think a little bit about the people to people dimensions. Um, and, and, and Dr. Emel, uh, we have a shared identity. We have, uh, for the most part, a shared religion in the region, shared ethnicities in the region, shared language, even shared dialects, even shared jurisprudence within the religion. What's the problem? What's happening on the people-to-people -people side? Pros, pros and cons, please, not just the, uh, the negatives. Dr. Ahmed. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like to share two, or if I have time, maybe three stories from my time in government. Um, you know, um, I remember, you know, when I was traveling, uh, in Tunisia, but also a bit in the region and meeting. I tried always as a minister to meet young people and to talk with them about, you know, how they see the future, what are their ambitions, what are their dreams. And you know what? I was shocked, especially in the most improvised regions that I visited, um, how much there was a mentality when people came to talk with me of, I, I call it like, you know, like give to give me and do for me, you know? And, you know, I was at the beginning a bit shocked and to be honest, maybe to be self-critical, a bit judgmental as well, you know, thinking, my God, why do these young people always asking what the state or I as a minister can do for them? You know, I wanted to challenge him and say, what, what are you going to do for me? You know, what are you going to do for your country? What, what are you doing? But actually engaging more with their realities, I think that we failed these young people. Uh, on many, many levels. You know, one is education. And despite coming from Tunisia, a country that profited a lot from our first president, you know, Bourguiba's decision to invest, I think at that time, over 25% of Tunisia's budget in education, which uh, was really high. 
Um, and, and I profited from that high quality education myself. Um, I think that over the years, um, you know, the, the quality of education went down. We've been, you know, educating people to be executors and not creators. Um, and, and that actually continues through our universities which I sometimes in a judgmental way call, you know, like they're, they're fab factories for unemployed. We shouldn't forget that youth unemployment is over 25% in certain regions, up to 50%, one of the highest in the world. And so the question is, um, you know, where did we fail them and how did we fail? So one is, uh, you know, the, the failed education reforms that we, we probably haven't put on. It has a lot of history of political uh, politicians who maybe not don't want you know citizens who think for themselves you know that's that's kind of linked um, to that culture but also um, I think there is a lack of of um, of exposure you know I had I had these you know again another experience I wasn't sitting in my office and I had these two young people from the south coming and I was like talking with my chief of staff and I was like, why do I have to meet these people? You know, like we have so many big strategic topics to do. And he's like, oh, sorry, they made 500 kilometers there, having some small festival actually on the border with Algeria and they, they really want to talk with you. And they made the effort. So I was like, okay, I have to talk with them. And so I sat with them and, and, and while they were talking about their, you know, this festival they're creating and they were actually a cross-border festival creating with, with another kind of, village um, from Algeria and I find myself almost like doing a one a one kind of marketing conversation with them what is the vision of the festival how they sell it how they're talking with sponsor etc and then you know one of them looks at me after half an hour and he says oh madam minister I'm so happy we talk this is the most I've learned in the last half hour you know and then it was like almost honestly they made me ashamed about myself. I felt like I was that arrogant person, you know, you know, having had the opportunity to study abroad, to work in some of the most, you know, advanced corporations in the world. And they've, you know, didn't have that exposure. So we, how can we increase their exposure to excellence? How can we increase their exposure to creativity? And how can we give them opportunities? So I really understood then what it means, um, you know, that that kind of, their attitude expecting from the state to do something because when you travel in those impoverished regions, you see that the state has failed them. You know, there is absolutely no exposure to culture, almost no exposure to creativity. And if you create something, your own business, you've had kind of more hindrance um, than support. And actually where, where the people to people is working in the South, we know that that is basically, uh, you know, informal trade, which is, illegal, but in a way existing informal trade, which also includes arms and, and all the other things between, you know, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, etc. So, um, so maybe that's, that's one thing. And I mean, we, we see some small hope projects, you know, we see projects where we talk about skill gap, we take young people who are unemployed and give them some, you know, skills and soft skills, some data. I think we have amazing young population in the region and I've seen results of people who have been employed for many years, um, you know, kind of being active in the digital world now. Uh, but these are still like pilot projects, maybe in the hundreds and thousands and not in the hundreds of thousands as we need them. So that's definitely one thing we need to support. Um, Maybe the second story which links to the people to people for me is, is, is I told you this in the preparation. I was in Lisbon 
and invited by the you know Portuguese government with this sank plus sank five plus five. So the idea was to have five you know the countries north of the Mediterranean and five countries south of the Mediterranean and to have ministerial meetings. And um, I was I don't know I woke up early uh, couldn't sleep five a.m. walked out of my hotel room um, walking on this amazing uh, you know coast and and suddenly meet a gentleman and I was like, oh yeah, we just saw each other by arrival five minutes and he was the Minister of Tourism for Morocco, Lahsen uh, Hadid, who became actually a friend over time. And then we had this most amazing two hour walk from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. on the Portuguese coast um, and having this really deep conversation about our vision for tourism in our countries and how we could do things together. And out of that conversation, we, we decided, oh my God, we have so many complementarities. You know, why can't we offer circuit? You know, why can't we offer a product with both countries in it, you know, where people can have different experiences and kind of, you know, go to China, for example, with such a product or other, you know, new touristic, um, you know, kind of markets. And, 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 and during all my tenure, we've worked really very closely together. Um, no one hindered us, to be honest, because a lot of people say, okay, politics, politics, but I mean, there is a real politic there. I mean, I think sometimes the people to people is about coming together and, you know, developing, you know, visions and strategies. And, and, and you know, you can start somewhere small and, and create that kind of cooperation and then, and then go from there. And that's actually one of the drivers that drove me also to join the Maghreb Economic Forum, where together with the BMW Foundation, we created something which was called the Responsible Leader Network. So we take young leaders from Tunisia and Libya and Algeria and Morocco and Mauritania, you know, and bring them together from NGOs, from public sector and corporate, um, you know, and take them through, um, you know, kind of an Otto Sharma, you know, MITU process, you know, open your mind, open your heart, open will, and, and, and kind of get them to know each other and, and understand about their current project and develop partnership on, let's say, civil society level uh, or corporate level. Um, and we've had really few very successful. We have a big event in Casablanca. We had a, a one in, uh, you know, in Algiers on the digital world. We had one in Tunis around policies. So in a way, I see those happening. I mean, it's not the big bank political destroying border thing. Um, but I feel that this can be really powerful for the next generation of leaders um, to know each other. We found we had a lot of common friends in Berlin and Paris and London and New York, and we didn't know each other, you know. Um, and, and, and that's, I think, uh, one thing that we've, in, in our small scale, trying to, to work on. Thank you so much, Dr. Emel. So, so many interesting uh, insights and perspectives, including uh, insider insights. One thing that you said, which I found uh, incredibly interesting, was your, your point around uh, executor, uh, not creator. And it's analogous with the states. I think we need these states to be uh, facilitators and arbiters rather than owners and, and makers and buyers, right? So that's, uh, that's, that's one thing we need to think about. Um, we, we will be moving to some of the, the interesting questions, which are mostly very political. So I, I, I do welcome questions from our audience to touch upon um, the, the varied perspectives we, we've heard. Um, but before going to Q&A, I'll take, take a sort of moderator's privilege. And I'll actually start with Dr. ML. You, you alluded to um, the idea that there was, when you were in government, uh, a Maghreb strategy as, as, you know, within the Ministry of, of Tourism. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that across... Uh, you know, across other ministries, if, if possible, and I promise I won't tell anybody, even though it's being recorded. Um, and, uh, and, and also to that end, as Minister of Tourism, the role of diaspora, because Morocco and Tunisia, I mean, you have the, the open skies of Morocco, Tunisia doesn't. Um, and moreover, of course, the role of the diaspora, but competition, complementarity, comparative advantage, you know, what do packages look like when you're comparing with your Moroccan counterpart, for example? Yeah. 
No, thank you for the question. I think, you know, like, um, I know that colleagues said the big countries are Algeria and Morocco, but I think you, you can be small and influential. <laughs> At least Tunisia has proven that over and over again. But, you know, for us, it's, 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 we feel like at the center of this region in a weird way, you know, probably because of the closed border between Algeria and Morocco. But, you know, Libya, we had a very close. So for, for us as a strategy in the government, it was really important. Obviously, we have a big motivation that Libya is not a failed state. You know, if you have no state, a lot of money and arms, that's a very Molotov cocktail combination to have as a neighbor, as you can imagine. So it really was important for us to do whatever we can to help the negotiation and, and, and kind of to bring peace. Um, on, on, on the left, Algeria has been always a closed, you know, I mean, many Tunisians have even Algerian. I have an Algerian, you know, grand grandparent and, you know, like it's very close, um, relationship, but, uh, we have also to be careful that, um, if we come too close with Morocco, that Algeria doesn't turn off the gas, you know, like we are energetically dependent, you know, so in a way our position has taught us to be very diplomatic, I think. Um, for me, Algeria was an amazing market, to be honest. You know, I had over one million Algerian tourists come to Tunisia every summer mainly, but all over the year. Um, and so kind of serving them uh, has been a huge opportunity as well. Uh, as I sold with, you know, with, you know we, we also talked to an energy level about more kind of cooperation, especially when it goes to renewable energies um, and solar energy as a government, you know, within the region. Um, and so for us, maybe being the small country, you know, um, and maybe being in a lucky position of, of maybe for certain times in our history as a kind of a more neutral position and having good relationship with every country in the region, um, having been able to play, maybe um, have a more strategic and more kind of maybe avec du recul, you know, more big picture and being able to manage. But the relationship with Morocco is also uh, politically excellent and, 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 you know, historically equally, you know, um, excellent. So in, in a way it's, 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 yeah, it's a privileged position in a, a little bit to, to be able to get along with everyone. <laughs> Uh, but it's also a very sensible, sensitive uh, position. And, and I know, for example, when it came to uh, radicalization or de-radicalization, um, that with being you know, responsible for tourism, this is an area which I had to look at for security reasons. Uh, we, had to, um, we had also a cooperation with Algeria and, 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 and also partly with Morocco and security, but also intelligence. And, and other areas thinking about youth. But I, I, we, I know we could have done much, much, much more. Uh, thank, thank you so much, Emma. Um, just, just a couple of questions for, for Amin, Azadine and Idris. This question, if we could sort of share it between Algeria and Morocco, between Azadine and Idris. Um, could you say a little bit about the role of personalities? Uh, you know, Trump, Trump has, uh, this, this, the Trump school of, uh, of thinking has taught us about the role of personalities in recent years. But when it comes to the Maghreb, what has been the role of the personalities when, it, when it's come to, to cooperation or, or, uh, or fragmentation? Uh, and and in where do you see things going uh, in, in the sort of short term, given some of the, the changes or musical chairs in the region? Who'd like to go for it? Uh, uh, there has been very little work, unfortunately, on leadership uh, in, in the Maghreb and in general. It's like a subfield in the study of politics that has really not uh, gotten enough attention. And here you try to uh, explain political events uh, and, politi and decisions and policies 
by going back to the individuals in charge and try to see to what extent their idiosyncrasies, their own you know, personality, character, the images they hold of the world and of the enemy or of the partner, to what extent all these things have an impact on the alternative that they finally pursue in terms of policy. And uh, this is one perspective, but another perspective would say that regardless of the individual and his personality, there is a structure in which they, uh, they act. And that structure limits the alternatives available to them. So you might have a Shadli Benjadid, for example, who went uh, to the Moroccans and say, okay, let's make a deal. Uh, let's make peace and all that. Then comes back home and then the structure says, otherwise, oops, this was not part of the options available to you, sorry. And then you have in Morocco, even though the king might be the almighty, you know, powerful institution, there is the makhzen around him. And the makhzen constitutes, I think, that structure that also might limit some kind of uh, Overtures or openings or as a din for, yes. for the benefit of uh, the the sort of um, non maghreb observers, could you disaggregate and explain what the mahzan is very briefly? <laughs> it is it is the it is the the uh, the other state in Morocco. It is the invisible. It is a set of powerful players that are members of the parties that are you know leaders that are part of the uh, business elite. And then, of course, members of the royal court, and so all, and also some religious uh, figures. All these things combine to make up what the uh, what the other state, the invisible state structure, is about. And so that's that's the we have the modern state, the visible, the ministries, and all that that we see. And then we have the mahzen behind the scene. So that's that's what the mahzen in Morocco. And no one can really account for political developments and policies in Morocco without taking into account what happens in the Mahzen. Thank you. I Idris, did you want to add to that? And, and, and maybe also add, given your sort of a, your, 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 your deep interest in, 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 in the long history of, of the Maghreb and, and its uh, pre-independence history, um, are Maghreb countries hostage to the past or to colonialism? You know, what to say about path dependency, uh, as succinct as, as one can be? with that question? Well, the first question, I think that Professor Layeshi covered it really well. Uh, I would, the only thing I would add as a historian there is that we're sort of forced oftentimes to focus on personalities and chemistry because we don't have access to what happens in the rooms. We rarely have access to the way that these leaders think except for rumors and uh, rare interviews and what we're privy to. And as a historian, the lack of access to archives is kind of sad. And uh, when we occasionally interview former actors in the privacy of their homes, tongues open up. But so in a way, I'm thinking as a historian, the sadness of not being able to understand the decisions leading uh, up to here. The second question is regarding this heavy legacy. I think... We don't have one idea, we have several ones. The name has remained the same, but along the way we've grappled with an aspiration that is quite different. The idea of creating a single unit is not the same as a close relationship between five established countries. We have a deeply anchored monarchy in Morocco. 
we have a socialist or at least what remains for the socialist republic in Algeria that is reliant on a strong legacy of fighting colonialism, different ideology, different models, Tunisia and its secular republic. So these elements as a historian tell me that maybe the, the most useful thing we can do is kill off Uma and then start fresh on new bases rather than trying to fit everything like a harira, like a soup, where we put everything from chickpeas to tomatoes and vegetables. And at the end of the day, it doesn't seem to quite work. So those are my two cents on the question. It, it, there is, uh, we have a, we have a, 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 a two-finger intervention. Azadin, please, very quickly. Yeah, I just want to uh, share this idea that as long as the need for a change that is not felt by more than one person, then by more than one, than one player, major players in the countries, we're not going to move. There is this stalemate that is happening on several issues, and if no one is hurting more than the other, there will be no movement. So for the time being, I don't think, you know, we should be overly optimistic. And just when looking at the European experience, what it took them to get to where they are. Two major wars. And then <clears throat> what did they start with? They did not start with big ideas, big political union and all that, just economic, basic economic interest. Intertwine the economies, get there, and then work on the standards and work on others. The political project is still in progress in the EU and in doubt, but the economic set has changed dramatically, starting from far below and moving on up. And the EU was in the making as they went. It was not really all well set up from the start. So we should think in these terms, and I agree with Idris on, on, on this, absolutely. Let's put this aside. This is really a damned idea. <laughs> let's, let's think fresh, but who is going to do the thinking and to what extent we can really move forward. This would be good to have a discussion on this. Thank you so much. Uh, so moving away from the culture of revolution to evolution. <laughs> and, you, and you mentioned coal and steel, and there is this always this metaphor idea that Sonatrak, the national oil company in Algeria, and OCP in Morocco would be the largest fertilizer producer on the planet, uh, which is wishful thinking. But um, uh, coming to Emin, um, could you tell us a little bit about the, the sort of status quo when it comes to what, you know, what businesses are doing with each other and how they're navigating around the state in terms of digital entrepreneurs? A lot of Tunisians have, uh, you know, due to difficulties in Tunisia, have shifted their, their space to, to Gaza uh, and so on and so forth. What's happening in, in, in Morocco? Well, before talking about Morocco, I would like to, uh, to add something about the previous question that there should be no monopoly on policy and decision-making by maritime construction. Okay, this is, a, this is a fact. I think that the private sector can inspire a new culture of dialogue and cooperation. And uh, we should start looking reality in the eyes. I will, talk, I will give you some examples of, of uh, some companies who are trading to, uh, together. But uh, now, uh, what I know that we are collectively creating results that nobody wants. And, uh, before creating an economic union, as, uh, as we said before, I think we should start building synergy between companies. That's why ISM, our think tank, uh, uh, relies on economy, not politics, not culture, only economy. This is the basis 
And we start from the economy in order to share common vision and to think as a market because now thinking as, as Algerian, as Tunisian, and so on, but not as Maghreb people. Though, so I will give you some example about uh, how the trade uh, is going on here in, uh, in, uh, in, the, in the region. Uh, I really appreciate the example, the partnership you, you quote between OCP and Sonatrack, uh, because they can uh, create a real ecosystem with some contractors, investors, research institute, and global jobs. Um, it would be a beautiful project because we know that the world population will grow from 7 uh, billion to uh, 9 billion in 2040. So I do agree with your idea. And you talked about diaspora. Do you know how many migrant people in Europe? More than 50 million. So they have a big major role to play in the Maghreb construction, but starting by the economy. So you want some, some information about the, the trade here. Um, we know that if we start uh, opening borders, uh, we know that Morocco would be the, the first winner on the competition because uh, Morocco um, have a, a good experience of international trade. They began before Algeria and there are more, uh, they have more strength than Tunisia. But we see that uh, all the companies here in Casablanca want to cooperate with the Algerian companies. I can give you two examples. Last month, uh, an Algerian company, which is at, uh, at the beginning, a uh, German company, which is the Knopf company, has exported more than 240,000 square meters of plasterboard from Wuhan, so in Algeria, to Morocco. And on the other side, we have seen that during the COVID-19 crisis, uh, a Moroccan company that I know very well, which is the soft group company, him, that soft group company in Casablanca have, uh, has exported masks to Algeria. We know that Moroccan banks are, are, uh, are, are now in Tunis. We know that a Moroccan company in the clothing sector has many shops in Algeria, but we need to know that the, the woman has a major play to play also because uh, the, the Maghreb began with craftswoman network. Yeah, they exist. And the MSN, for, for instance, you, 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 talked, you talked about digital sector. We know that we have a Maghreb start, startup network here. And we have also the MagTech, which is, it, is the network for the IT science integration into the regional development. So we have a lot of examples. We can succeed in creating a new Maghreb, starting from the beginning. And what is the beginning? Is the population, is to looking reality, also its economy and the Maghreb spirit. Thank you so much, Emin. Um, we're now going to move to Q and A's, but um, because I, I want to make things fun, and in a spirit of um, in a spirit of culinary metaphor, since Idris introduced one through Harira. Um, I'm going to take the liberty of responding to a comment which asks why, where Egypt's role is in North Africa. And I've, I always tell this joke and it's, I find it funny, so you'll have to bear with me. But um, it's an apocryphal tale of, uh, of, of, of Sadat and what Sadat of Egypt walking along with uh, the late Colonel Qaddafi and, and asking him, you know, maybe we should do a, you know, a North African union. You know, let's not talk about the Maghreb. And, 
and Colonel Qaddafi responded by, uh, the, like I said, the the the, the most topical. Um, and uh, oh, we 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 just received something in the chat that is, it was waiting for a koshari metaphor, but uh, maybe maybe next time. Um, so so one of the questions that keeps coming up. So we've got one from Bronwyn um, Manby, which is, what is the impact of Morocco rejoining the African Union for the resolution of the Western Sahara situation and consequently relations? with Algeria and other Maghreb countries. Of course, uh, Morocco left the AU um, uh, for, for some decades and, and, and rejoined, uh, I think it's a couple of years ago now, right? Um, and, and so we could marry that question with, with, with another, which is around um, you know, the status of the, 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 the Sahara situation and what that might be doing to deter um, uh, an Algeria, Maroc, rapprochement. Who would like to, to pick that up? Um, Quick questions, quick answers, please. Yeah, I don't think it will have any impact uh, for this simple reason. The African Union as an organization does not have that power. And it also has been highly divided on the issue, as we know. And uh, there, is a, there has been a lot to be gained by Morocco by rejoining finally. And I'm very glad that it finally did. Uh, but in the medium term, short term, long term, I don't think the AU will have any impact. The return of Morocco to the AU will have any impact, period. Did, did anybody want to add to that or, or, or we can move on? So, so this is a question, and, and again, they're, they're deeply political, but if you'd like to bring an economic or a, or a slightly different angle, please do. So we have a question from, from Yahya Zubir, again, incredibly topical, uh, and he's curious to know about uh, the, the take and the impact of outside powers in preventing Maghreb integration. Uh, and he specifically, you know, relates to sort of new alliances in the region, which mark possibly the end of the Maghreb dream, question mark. So thinking here, European Union, but also some bold assertive players in the Gulf, perhaps. Uh, and, and of course, uh, Russia and Turkey in that discussion. Who, who wants to, to, to touch upon that? Idris or ML? Please, ML. No, I think... Look, um, I'm not looking at this as an historian. Maybe Idris has a different take on it. I look at it from a from a kind of lived experience. I think when you are weak, you know, you there is a divide and conquer attitude to that. You know, I mean, in in a way, uh, for for Europe, I mean, the southern part of the Mediterranean is important, and is probably easier to manage. You know, one by one. You know, piecemeal by piecemeal, and. And, and, and even when you look at um, the support which was supposed to happen after the so-called Arab Spring, you know, uh, in Deauville and elsewhere, you know, there were talking about billions, billions that, that kind of never arrived. Um, I personally, after leaving government, you know, was involved heavily with the Maghreb Economic Forum and talking with a few of these European, you know, um, development agencies and aid agency talking about supporting actually financially and, and politically, the Maghreb integration, um, I can tell you that the interest was 0 0.000, you know, um, absolutely none, you know, and, and I think, in a way, if I put myself in their shoes, um, you know, doesn't wonder me much, because, you know, if we among ourselves are not really deeply interested in it, uh, why should they, you know, and, and it's maybe easier for them to have bilateral, actually, um, you know, kind of economic also deals and negotiation that are good for the European market rather than good for the other side. So I'm very, very pragmatic on that end. 
um, unless it becomes a security matter or threat, um, then, then there is maybe or, or refugee potential crisis in the future, then, then potentially the interest, um, I guess, will increase uh, because we have a huge youth bulge in, in, in our region. Um, and I know, what, you know, as the Dean said about leadership and lack of political leadership, but I, I really think we will have more pressure. We just, as government, are not delivering well for our citizen, you know? And, and, and I think that all these young people who too many of them are unemployed, will challenge our own governments more. And, and we have to do a lot of homework in terms of reforms within our countries. And so for me, the question of that integration of the migrant, be it political or economical or cultural, the question is, will, that, will driving that agenda help us with our own reforms or do we have to do some own reforms and get our house in orders before we can even talk about integration? I don't have the answer to this. It's kind of a catch-22 sometimes. Um, it sort of segues into a question from Ed McAllister. I'm not sure if Emin or Idris want to pick up on this one, but, but Ed's asking whether the EU, uh, the, the main trade partner for, for all of these uh, uh, countries, um, do they reinforce these dynamics? Uh, is there a preference to deal bilaterally or is that just a, 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 you know, a symptom of, of uh, fragmentation? Uh, and of course, I don't, uh, you know, for those that are uh, looking at a, a rentier state like Algeria who are currently negotiating what was a, probably a, a bad deal, to use uh, Trump terminology, um, uh, with the EU. Uh, Emin, Idris. Okay. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, I would like to reverse the question, uh, telling you that Maghreb uh, should strengthen its negotiating power in front of uh, some trading partners such as Euro. And uh, if, we, uh, if we see the, this point from the European point of view, I will tell you that uh, we, learn, we have learned uh, from the uh, crisis in Libya that the development of this region is very important. So if some Europeans officials think that they should carry on um, um, creating some partnership in the unilateral way, they are wrong. Because we have seen that if the Maghreb economy um, uh, is uh, on the way, each country can earn around $2 billion each year. So Europe, Europe must encourage from now uh, the realization of the Maghreb economy community. Um, uh, let me intervene here because uh, Amin's point uh, underlines the possibilities and the benefits if we look at the same question from empirical and historical terms, I think what Ed has suggested is quite factual and, and correct in the sense that in the, in the 1980s, or at least in 1977, when Portugal, Spain, the Southern European countries began the process of integrating Europe, they directly uh, saw the agriculture and, and other industries in North Africa as in direct competition with the future countries. And so while there are ultimately benefits that could be presented in the medium to longer terms, there are more pressing immediate exigencies that prevent, that have prevented, speaking empirically, these actors to look at the longer term strategy. And again, to push the argument a little bit forward, I've not been in the negotiating rooms between EU uh, officials and the delegations from Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia. So I cannot tell you uh, whether there is a conscious decision to divide and conquer 
although it doesn't seem intuitively correct. What I can say is that on the other side, on the North African side, the immediacy of the benefits of striking a peace, uh, a peace agreement, uh, a business agreement with the EU trumps the ultimate benefits of delaying those agreements with the EU, looking inwards, going through five, 10 years of difficulty, but ultimately coming out winners. And I'm very inspired by something that Amin, as Dean and Ahmed, the three of you said, uh, the timing and how much patience and courage and also foresight do our leaders have in order to suffer a few short-term downturns in order for the longer term to alleviate our dependency from the EU, to turn ourselves. And I don't think that patience agree, exists right now for a number of reasons that you may understood, understand very well. Thanks very much. Um, as it in a very quick two very finger? Quick. Yeah, just, just uh, to remind us that only there was one initiative that tried to promote the idea of, of uh, a Maghrebi market. Was it the Isenstadt initiative in the 1990s? And he said that Americans would not invest in, in the Maghreb unless there was a much bigger market for them with the common standards and all that stuff. And as I have spoken to him personally, and I just said, but the political dimension, you, you know, is, is essential here. That was going to block it. But th that was a clear call for integration, economic integration. Beyond that, there has been nothing, as it, it was just said here from the Europeans. You are muted, Adel. We can't hear you. Thank you. So, thanks so much, Ahmed. We, for Amin, we have a, a brilliant political economy question from Algiers. Uh, Tahir Yahyawi asks, and you could sort of broaden this, uh, how would you see the border opening between the countries here? He's referring to Algeria, Morocco, uh, and the idea of free trade movement, given essential products are, of course, underwritten and subsidized by, by the rentier state Algeria. So a little bit about winners and losers. Uh, uh, you know, could you say a little bit also what Algerians would call sarraqin or uh, politically connected or the IMF and World Bank would use neutral terminology like politically, uh, politically connected? Um, what happens for winners and losers? Who are the winners and losers of, of integration? So, first of all, I would like to, to, to thank Mr. Uh, Taha for this question. Uh, but we should know that here in Morocco, we have also some subsidized products, such as um, oil, sugar, and, uh, and so on. So, uh, we need the, I think the, the, the key point is not about this product. The key point is we need to diversify the regional economy and move it to up market to higher value added manufacturer product. Because what, what have we seen, what did we see uh, from the COVID-19 crisis? We see that there is a place for the Maghreb uh, companies. We need to replace ourselves in the world value chain by, by trying to propose to occidental partners, such as European, for instance, a less risky supply chain. So we don't have to supplant China in some low value added industries. No, we can move to higher value added manufacturing products. And if, we, if I want to uh, give you an answer about your question, I think Morocco is the most competitive in the region with a substantial potential to increase exports to Maghreb countries and to the rest of the world. But uh, Algeria, can uh, be a major player if they do uh, the reforms needed 
for its for its uh, economy. Thank, thank you so much, uh, uh, Amin. Um, we have a question from Karim Al Wazani, um, and he asks a, 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 a very straightforward question. Uh, and ML, maybe you want to touch this, touch upon this. Is France still the main actor that exerts external influence on the Maghreb? Um, and, and linking that, do we see increasing partnerships with Russia and China? Uh, and then he, he links it three in one, uh, a, a brilliant question which we'd need a two week workshop for. What do the people of the Maghreb want? Rajal Fashara, Al Bint Fashara, what do they want? <laughs> Look, I mean, I'm, I have to be careful not to be overly critical, but um, like when I tell you, for example, when we had state visits, okay, um, you know, when we had state visits to France and Paris or then Berlin or Washington or Beijing, the one that you find the fullest is the one to Paris, you know. So there is still, you know, and when you want to meet, you know, business leader from all the Maghreb countries, if you do it in Paris or Geneva, you have much higher chance to meet them than if you would do it in, you know, Tunis, for example, you know, so despite Tunis being a bit of a neutral place. Um, so there is still like a lot of uh, influence. And now I have to be careful not to be politically completely incorrect. But I, I find that critical because I think despite, you know, the role that France can play in good and bad, I think we need to have a bigger vision of the world. The world is much bigger than that. We do have a bit of legacy also language-wise with a, with a, with a francophonie, then Arabisation, you know, with trying to get then more Arabic and that messed up actually the whole education system in many of our countries, um, you know, so in a way, but young people, I see a lot of young people, actually we're speaking today in English, but a lot of young people in all Maghreb countries are actually investing more in English and knowing that that actually will connect them more to, to, you know, to be able to be part of a global economic ecosystem as well. Um, so I'm, I'm maybe not your best Francophone friends anyway, having studied in Germany and lived in the US and South Africa, et cetera. So, um, you know, but uh, I, I do see that critically that uh, France from more, you know, sometimes when something is published in the mall, it's funny enough, people in North Africa read it more, you know, in the Maghreb than the French do, you know? So sometimes the French media has a stronger influence in our countries than it has in France. So it, it has a kind of, I think, strong narrative, political narrative and cultural narrative um, that I think sometimes is more hindering than, you know, helping with, 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 with progress. Um, and when you come back to the person on the street, um, look, we, we, we just like what I said at the beginning, you know, I think we are failing our young people. I mean, we have to be honest about this. We can't, we can't pretend, you know, we can't have nice political discourses. And honestly, with all countries, I mean, Amin has been very positive, you know, toward Morocco's competitivity, but Moroccan, you know, you have much higher inequality than in some of the other countries, you know, between rich and poor, you have in a certain areas, 50% of women analphabetism, you know, there is, you know, like, so, you know, obviously when you go to Marrakesh and all these places, very PR, it's very shiny, but go a bit outside and you will see the poverty, you know, like it's, it's just like, I'm, I'm, and it's not just Morocco, you know, all these countries, I think we're not open and honest enough in our political discourse. We are failing these young people and these young people are unemployed and, and, and lacking inclusion when, I mean, sorry, I get sometimes angry because when I was minister, I was invited by the Minister of Interior before the summer season to tell me I want to brief you about security. 
And I thought it's going to be a strategic conversation. And then part of that conversation, I sit there and he's like, I'm going to show you a PowerPoint with a picture of some people that we think could be potential terrorists. Okay. And I came with a very Western media influence mindset. I thought he's going to show me some middle aged 40 to 50 year old guys with hag ugly beards and ugly eyes, you know? And the more picture I saw, the sicker I felt. This was 16, 17 year old young boys mostly, and some young women that looked exactly like my children, you know? And they were from Tunisia, from Algeria, from Morocco, from Libya, you know? And I, I felt sick, you know? I left that meeting, I sat in my car, asked my driver to leave the car, and I cried. I honestly cried, you know, because I felt, you know, this is our responsibility. We are, you know, these people don't feel included, don't feel empowered. And, and I took an oath after I leave government because I didn't have the time then to do something about it. And we are doing a big project right now on radicalization in the Maghreb economy to understand how that happens. And we always come back to the topic of inclusion. We always come back to the topic of meaning. And we can't leave ISIS and the others in this world to give these young people meaning, you know, and, and that they exist. So... I think we have to be much more honest about what we are failing. Thank you so much, ML. Um, I have a, a, a hundred billion dollar question from Nicholas Pelham at The Economist. Uh, Azadine Idris, uh, maybe you'd like to, to, to share this one. And it brings us back to, to, to what people from outside think is the original sin, but uh, it isn't if you look at uh, chronology and timelines of key moments in our region. Um, and it's, uh, where is the Western Sahara situation heading and how can it be resolved? Uh, so if you, if, you could, if you could provide a, um, a, an answer for, uh, for policymakers around the world in a minute, a minute and a half, that'd be fantastic. Please. Take you back to what I said earlier, something that I borrowed from one of my favorite uh, teachers uh, here in New York, named a specialist on negotiations and diplomacy. That's William Zartman. If he's listening somewhere, he's a Maghrebist. And uh, <clears throat> the idea is that the stalemate, is the stalemate hurting everyone equally? And uh, as long as the stalemate is not hurting the, uh, the two sides equally, then there will be no movement. And so Morocco it, at the time uh, and the current dynamics, uh, regional and international dynamics are on the side of Morocco. So with time, at least the Moroccans are hoping the international uh, uh, community, meaning the big players, will come to acquiesce to the indefinite uh, uh, control of Western Sahara by, and that the Sahrawis becomes just a refugee issue that will, uh, be, that will also wither away with time. So at least this is one, one view of thinking. it. The other perspective might look at maybe the Sahrawis getting up on their feet and going back to war. And to what extent that is a feasible, uh, uh, a feasible uh, scenario for now. For now, it does not seem feasible for a, vari for a variety of structural reasons. Uh, so uh, it depends on how you want to look at it. You might want to look at it that the Moroccan way of doing it is, uh, currently is the best in Morocco's interest, and the Sahrawi question will, will wither away in the long term. There is no interest among the big players in pushing the situation otherwise. 
the United States do not are not moving in that direction. The French, the Spaniards, these are key players uh, on this. The, uh, the interest is to keep stability, especially for Morocco, and we know how much stability, uh, the stability of the kingdom has become tied to Western Sahara. And this is starting from the early 70s, uh, after the two coup attempts against uh, Hassan, uh, Hassan II. So uh, I do not see any, any movement in the medium term on this. There might be some security uh, council, council, the UN resolution here and then, minerals are being renewed, some clashes in the south uh, over some of the arrangements uh, with the Polisario, but, but I do not see any movement. So the deadlock is likely to continue uh, on this situation until it either resolves itself, which means the Moroccan uh, uh, control is finally uh, accepted. We're talking about five years from now, 30 years from now, and then we move beyond it. Or somebody else what might raise the stakes up, depending on what happens in Algeria. That's a very important factor. It depends also on what happens in the whole Sahel region. It's all connected now. Thank you. And just to add yes. to that, uh, as a historian, I, I can't say what's going to happen in the future, but I can remind the audience that in the 1980s, uh, Bunjdid and Hassan II agreed to set aside this question and then work first towards the creation of the United Arab Maghreb and then resolve it within the context of this institution, which led to the ceasefire of 1991. And so that could potentially be a third option to the two ones that, as Adim just mentioned, the, so setting it aside or at least wanting to resolve it in some kind of multilateral uh, fashion. And that leads us back to thinking about the Maghreb and the stakes of the Maghreb. We're almost coming up to our, uh, our close. We have a few minutes left. So we'll take, we'll take one more question and then a sort of uh, you know, broader uh, or, or, or actually two, if we can connect them. Uh, for, for Amin and, and, and Emel, we have uh, Kahina Bouagash who, uh, who sort of highlights the sort of key areas which stifle integration and create fragmentation, you know, trade, uh, tariff barriers, political conflict, and the border issue. Um, and, and historically, we've found that countries often uh, sometimes coalesce, if not performatively or uh, in real terms, uh, at times of insecurity and when things are difficult, right? So um, she asked, do you think that these countries would give a chance for cooperation post-COVID, considering the impending economic crisis uh, coming at these countries? Uh, Amin, Emel, is this a uh, is this going to engender closer cooperation, the, the hardships and the, and, the, and the loss of jobs and all the rest of it? Okay, sorry. So I think that the, the, the domestic uh, market uh, in, the, in the Maghreb region is very, is very small. So um, they should uh, add in their agenda the, the regional cooperation. So when, when, uh, when the, the question talks about the custom duties. Yeah, is it true? Because inside the, the Maghreb, the custom duties are higher between these countries than um, the trade with Europe. So it's incredible, but is this true? So that's why I talked about the needed to uh, create um, a respect a mechanism of, um, in order to, to respect the procedures of the agreements. So. If we want to succeed the cooperation, we have to respect the rules. And now the rules are not respected. 
Thank you, Emin. We, we have a very brief question before I, I ask sort of a wrapping up and, and forward-looking crystal ball gazing. Um, ML, this one's at you. We have a, a question from Marianne Lanazza, um, who has enjoyed the presentations very much. Um, and she asks uh, the, the role of identity and culture, namely the Amazir one, when it comes to, to integration. Um, I'm not sure which angle you want to approach this by, with. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm an expert on this. It's interesting. Um... Firstly, I can say my grandparents' mother's side still spoke Shilha, which we call Shilha in Tunisia, almost actually very, very little existing. And we did, when we did the MEF logo, we tried to use a bit of Amazir, you know, kind of signs. Um, and then people were, oh, careful, careful, careful. This could create some political um, implications. Um, look, I, 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 I don't know. I'm not an expert on, on, on the Amazir question. For me, the cultural identity piece is is if you travel, if you talk with people in the region, if you look at family connections, it's, you know, the, we have a huge cultural and, you know, identity, common identity on the people to people side, even if, you know, Idris and others talked about, you know, we have a monarchy and we have this republic and we have, but when you go on the, on the people to people side, on the culture side, on songs and food, on, you know, uh, values, family values, you, you will see a lot more similarities than I think one thinks. Um, but again, I pass on the Amazir question because I'm, I'm not I'm not an expert. Uh, Adil, can I intervene? Very, very, very quickly, please. Yes, I'd like to bounce back on a question that Khalid posed in, in the background. And it's uh, the text, the foundational text by a Moroccan sociologist and writer called Abdelkabir Khatibi on the plural Maghrib. And it was published uh, in the late 70s where he talks about rethinking the Maghrib in order to bring up the plurality and inclusions. And it includes the idea of Amazighiti and other marginalized identities. And I think if people want to rethink the Maghreb in sort of a plural way, that's a place to start and to possibly infuse what we're talking about with a people basis. Thank you so much. In, in, the, in the same order that we, uh, we, we opened up with, uh, before we sort of apologize to the questions that we couldn't take uh, and thank participation in the usual way. Uh, I'm going to ask each of you to either tell us where the Maghreb as a region will be in 2025 in 30 seconds, uh, positive, negative, same status quo, uh, or uh, offer one, one, one piece of advice for, for policymakers sitting in our region's capitals. As a dean, you can pick one of those and you have 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, I, I would say that there will be no, no movement uh, and uh, and we have seen the impact of, of the uh, COVID-19 on the globe. Most states have closed on themselves and, and have, have been thinking about becoming less and less dependent on the relations with the outside world. So that tendency is not like, is, is likely to also uh, be present uh, in the Maghreb, unfortunately. So I, I see no change, but I, I think that everybody is aware of the potential gains for everyone. Uh, to move towards some kind of opening and to put a little bit aside some of the political issues and work on resolving them one at a time. And I hope that the new generation, just like it took over the streets of Algeria, you know, by the millions, will do the same across the Maghreb and call for this nonsense, the end of this nonsense, and try to, you know, create bridges, uh, you know, small bridges, would help and, and, and lead the way towards some kind of 
reconnection of the Maghreb as it used to be in the old days. So I, I hope, I'm an optimist, but for the long haul. Thank you so much. Idris, please. So I do share the same assessment that we are destined for status quo in the future and that maybe there is hope in new blood, but I don't think new blood by itself is sufficient because we know that young generations can often be co-opted and socialized into some ways of thinking. So I would simply add that we also need to be two things, creative in our solutions and thinking, and secondly, patient and think that we're in this in the long run. And therefore, our solutions need to stop looking for immediacy, but instead dare to imagine something that might deliver in one generation and so on. Thank you so much. I mean, will we ever have a Made in Maghreb brand? Uh, in 2000, uh, no, within five years, I don't think so. But I think that we can start by, um, by making some joint ventures between companies because we did not talk about the uh, low 51-49 in Algeria. So it would be the end uh, of this low. So it will, be, it, would, it will create some opportunities for uh, um, uh, Maghreb uh, companies. I think that the, the key point will be the innovation and research. And uh, we can start by creating an academic exchange program, as we said before, uh, Ibn Khaldun program. Um, it would be a good idea. We can also uh, make some progress in uh, gender female integration uh, inside companies. So I think that the private sector can be a major player in the success of this region within, within the five next years after. I don't know, but we have to uh, look the right into the eyes and uh, we can make big progress, but starting step by step, not uh, moving quickly, as we said in 1989. Thank you so much. I mean, one, one big question we always ask about the private sector is how private is this private sector? Mm -hmm. But we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have a round table on that in the future. Uh, ML. Yeah, I think, look, I'm, I mean, there is a half full and half empty part of the glass. For me, the half empty part of the glass is how much suffering our population, they, they have really huge ability to suffer, honestly, you know, and, and on, on, uh, so that makes me more pessimist and think it's going to take a longer, longer term and, and maybe reforms in each country have to happen before something else happens. On the other side, the half full part of the glass, I think change can happen faster than you think, as we all have seen this year, but also in our region. And so who knows, you know, maybe, maybe there will be a, a youth movement, um, you know, against this rentier economy, against this political deadlocks, against leadership that doesn't really care about delivering for citizens, etc. And that could happen maybe much faster than we think. So for me personally, working on this Maghreb question has been sometimes frustrating because I feel no one wants this, no one wants to pay for it, no one is interested, you know. But on the other side, I think the day it will happen, I'll, I'll be ready. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, ML. Uh, I'd like to start by, um, by, by thanking um, the audience, the participants, uh, wonderful questions, uh, wonderful comments uh, and engagement. Um, I'd like to, on behalf of my colleague Zineb Lalwin, uh, Bill Sinton and Hugh Roberts, I'd like to, to, to thank the LSE Middle East Centre for, for being generous hosts, as always, even when it's virtual. Uh, and last but not least, I'd like to thank uh, Azidin Layashi, Idris Jabari, uh, Amin Buhassan, Mel Karbul, and there's one, one, one person well, I, I, must, uh, I must stress. Uh, I'd like to also thank Nadine El-Manasfi of the LSE Middle East Center who made this happen. 
uh, and uh, the Society of Algerian Studies will be uh, organizing a, another event in the new year. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, happy holidays. And uh, uh, I'm sure the Maghreb has a, a brighter future in the end and the North African star uh, will rise like a phoenix. Uh, thank you, everybody, and have a wonderful evening. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Bye-bye.